morning. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we'll be in John chapter 3 today. Very familiar passage of Scripture, but I believe we're going to receive uh, a fresh and encouraging uh, word from God today. Uh, we're less than a month away from Easter, and every spring, as uh, every year as spring comes along in the Easter season here, I always stop and wonder at the reality that we get to live in. Because uh, there was a world that didn't get to enjoy the good news that we often take for granted. We sing about it and we celebrate it every Sunday, Wednesday, every day, hopefully as a Christian. Uh, but there, there was a reality where this wasn't as well-known as uh, common knowledge as it is for us. But we live in a world, we live in a world where our creator, the creator of the whole world, where the God of the universe shrank himself down 2,000 years ago to become a part of and become part of the species responsible for wrecking his perfect creation. Do you ever stop and think about that? That we live in a reality. We live on this side of a reality where the God of the universe, our creator, the creator of the whole world, who created things that we'll never even understand, we'll never even get to see until we're looking down from heaven and observing it all, who has been the author of things that we, that we will never comprehend in our little minds. The God of the universe shrank himself down I mean, the Bible says that God is so big that all of the heavens are constantly expanding because God's glory is so amazing and his presence is so big and always increasing that the universe cannot contain the presence of God. Yet we think we can in, in, in our words and our ways, but obviously we can't. But the God of the universe, who is bigger than our wildest imagination, that God, the God, shrank himself down to be one of us. And not just one of us says, hey, we're just a people, you know, we're people looking at, we're pretty special people, right? We're pretty special creatures. We are the people, we are the creatures, we are the species responsible for wrecking the perfect creation that God authored. Isn't it amazing that God became one of us, one of the very creatures that messed it all up? Now, that's pretty incredible, but when you put it that way, it, it really tells us so much about who our God is and the kind of God that we serve. And it really should inform us, maybe this should be the starting point for everybody's conversation about God. This is who our God is. He became one of us. And that should really inform the rest of the conversation, or I hope it does. God came alongside those who had walked away from his side. That is in a nutshell who our God is. God came alongside of those who had walked away from his side. But of course, our understanding of what it means, what this means for the first century world and what it's meant for the world since is informed by what God did while he was on earth with and in a bodies like, like ours. So we understand all this through the lens of the Bible on the side of things that, on the side of it actually happening. So we understand what happened. We can interpret it. We've heard sermons on it, sing songs about it. We know why he came to be alongside of us. So we don't question it whether or not there were motives that, that you know, the motives were good or, or, or not good. We know what God came to do. We are benefit, benefited by and products of what God came to do. Uh, we, we think of uh, the notion of God becoming one of us and we automatically see that as good news. There's not a part of us that thinks that isn't good news, right? Which is because we know what God did when he came to be one of us. He died for us and he rose back to life promising new and better resurrected life to everybody that follows him and believes in him. So we know that God coming to be with us was good for us. But you could imagine, and maybe you haven't ever thought about it, but maybe you should today for uh, a little while. You could imagine it would not be a far-fetched thing to consider that God coming to visit those who messed everything up and started uh, and, and messed up what he started. You could imagine that that might not initially sound like a pleasant idea for the people that heard the news or people that begin to think about what would it mean for God to pay a visit to the people that messed everything up? And you could imagine that there isn't a wild, isn't too wild of an idea to think that that might not be good for people. Now, we don't bat an eye because we know the whole story, right? We don't question it being good because we know it was for our good. But don't you think that there was a way it could have gone completely different? We're God, not the God that we know him to be. 
Now, again, we don't have to imagine this uh, too much or too long because it's well documented in ancient history how what people thought about when they thought about God coming alongside of them. And it wasn't always the good things that we think about. How people from basically every religion feared and dreaded the notion of God being one of them because they knew, they, they were confident that if God ever came to be with us or to be one of us, it would be doom for us. In fact, the Old Testament has tons of confessions and accounts of people regarding this very subject. So let's take a look at some of them. I think you're familiar with a few of these. Genesis chapter three. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. So when Adam and Eve, now we know what happened before this, but here it is just a few days into everything happening, everything existing. When Adam and Eve heard God coming near them, what was their instinctual response? They hid from him. Because they were convinced that God coming near was not good. Think, why would anybody think that? Well, they did. But it wasn't just them. Exodus chapter 3. God called to Moses out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Now, if we would show a few stories from in between Genesis and Exodus, you would see more and more examples like this. And every single time when God came near, when God spoke out, people responded in fear. Why is that? And this isn't reverence. This isn't let's worship. This is, this is not gonna go well for us. So we better hide. Adam and Eve hid. Moses hid. Exodus 20. Now, we all know what happens in Exodus. God sends Moses to bring the people out of slavery. He crosses the Red Sea. He performs miracle after miracle. He feeds them supernaturally from heaven. So clearly, God was doing good things for his people, right? So when they come to Mount Sinai to hopefully get more good things from, his, from, from God, this is how they respond to God's presence. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. Now, again, of course they were. Adam and Eve were afraid. Moses was afraid. So why wouldn't they be afraid? And they trembled and they stood far off. They walked away from God. God came near and they said, whoa, we're getting out of here. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. When God gets close, we feel like we're getting close to death. Adam and Eve, Moses, the nation of Israel that were just supernaturally saved from bondage. All of them afraid of God. Why? And we could go on and on. I mean, if we had all morning, we could go through every page of the Old Testament and find accounts like this. Maybe one of the most common responses from people who encountered any sort of angel or revelation from God was this. And, and this one is found several times in the Old Testament, but we're going to zoom in on one occasion in the book of Judges when Samson, when the, the, the judge Samson's birth is pronounced or announced by the angels from God. This is how Samson's parents respond. And Manoah, his dad, said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Now they hadn't really saw God. They saw a bright light that was from an angel that was from God. And they were convinced this is not good. And of course they were convinced because Adam and Eve, Moses, the children of Israel, all were terrified of God coming close. The common denominator is never did God appear or manifest himself for the purpose of terrifying anyone. That was never God's intentions. God did not come near to Adam and Eve, Moses, the nation of Israel, or Samson's parents, or anybody else that we read about in the Old Testament. God never approached them with the desire to scare people or terrify people or worry people. But their reaction every single time, you can fact check it from page to page, 
every reaction was one of terror. Their instinctual reaction to God, even just the thought of him appearing, was to be afraid of him. Whenever approached by God, they assumed that he was coming near for ominous reasons. They never imagined, and again, this is so hard for us to understand because we are Christians living on this side of the cross and resurrection. We have a Bible that tells us otherwise. But they never imagined that God would come close and it would mean something good. They always were convinced that if God came close, it would be their end. Now, never once in any of these scenarios that we read, were people afraid of God? Were people were afraid of God? Did God mean anything but good for those people? We know what he was doing in ancient Israel. He was always trying to help people and save people and establish a nation for his people. He was always looking out for their good. But that never made a difference. Even though he proved himself again and again, that was not enough to convince them. Again and again, people's default reaction to God coming near was fear terror. They were afraid of God. No matter how much God shouted from heaven or sent prophets to reveal that he was working good for people, that he had plans for people's good, people could not help but feel as if they were always at risk in the presence of God, even though, and this might, may, may even be even more incredible to think about, even the people chosen by God to serve in the temple, they were never comfortable doing so. God prescribed a highly detailed process by which the priest could approach him in the temple, but still everybody who served in the temple was always on edge. Even though they were the closest to God, and maybe that was the problem, they were the closest to God and they were the most afraid, afraid of God. So much that tradition tells us, this isn't in the Bible, but this is written by some of the rabbis that passed down Jewish tradition, and this is pretty well documented and pretty well considered to be fact. So much tradition tells us the Levites decided to tie a rope to the priest's ankle anytime they went into the holy place because they were convinced that God might just kill them without warning because they didn't think they could trust God. They were doing this because they thought they might keep God happy and keep him from doing something that would hurt everybody, but the priests were convinced they might not come out alive. And the other priests thought, well, we don't want to go in there and get their body because we might die too. So we're going to drag them out in case we hear somebody fall. <laughs> in fact, there's a scene in the New Testament and the backstory of Christmas that evokes the fear that even the people that knew there was, knew all there was to know about God, even the priesthood that knew what it meant to draw near to God, even they were afraid of God's presence. You've read this before, Luke chapter one. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. And the reason why they chose by lot is because nobody wanted to go in because they were all afraid to. So they essentially drew straws. And it was Zechariah's turn to go into the temple and burn incense to God. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. I bet they were, because they were afraid they might not ever see him again. But usually people went in and they came out, nothing happened, they didn't see God, didn't feel God, didn't hear from God, and they were happy about it, honestly, because they didn't know if it would be good. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I mean, shouldn't he be enthusiastic? Shouldn't he be excited? Shouldn't he be shouting and praising God because he's actually seeing something from heaven? No, no, no. He was troubled when he saw this and fear fell upon him. And you think, well, of course he was afraid. Adam and Eve were afraid. Moses was afraid. The children of Israel were afraid. Samson's parents were afraid. Everybody was afraid of God. So of course Zechariah was afraid. Of course it wasn't good for him to see an angel because why would that ever be good? Because if God ever came close to people, that only would mean bad. So we've covered it, Genesis to Luke. 6,000 plus years, there was constant, this consistent gut feeling towards any and all encounters with God. Nobody, and I mean nobody, thought it was a good idea or a good thing. So I say all this to say that. 
I, I say all that to say this. When whispers began to spread that God had not just visited the earth, but that God had moved in. When whispers and rumors began to spread that God had took on flesh, and while there was this faint hope that maybe this was the anointed Messiah that had been rumored about and been taught about, there was just as many or more that wondered, who feared, who worried that if God truly has moved into our midst, if God really is in our midst, that can't be for our good. Because again, take away what we know, return to a world darker and more desolate, a world that didn't celebrate a day that stood for reconciliation and redemption, a world that didn't sing songs about God's love, a world that didn't uh, sing songs about God being near and God being for. Imagine how that world would have felt at the notion of God paying a visit. When people began to hear rumors of Jesus of Nazareth, potentially being, maybe being, God in flesh. And you don't have to imagine because we've seen it for our, with our own eyes without through history. History of a nation of people who were connected to God like in, nobody else and yet they did not react to God with enthusiasm or with hope. They were afraid and they were fearful and dreadful of his presence. Now, this might explain to you why Jesus went out of his way to explain to his original audience why he came, because nobody knew or no one came up to the conclusions uh, themselves. Jesus explained himself again and again and again. The New Testament explains itself again and again and again, because this was not anybody's instinctual thought of what it would mean for God to come near. Because, because something, something was working against the very people that God had proven himself to be working for. I, I think we can come to that conclusion, right? I mean, we've read about it. Adam and Eve, Moses, the children of Israel, the people of the Old Testament, people that God had given him his love to, had proven himself to be for and good to, they were still afraid. So clearly something was working against them. Something was fighting against them to see, from, from seeing God the way God wanted to be seen. That's the only conclusion we can make. But what could it be? Well, thankfully, not only did Jesus reveal how God feels about the world once and for all, but he also revealed to us the inhibiting factor which repeatedly causes us to misinterpret and misunderstand God. That even on this side of the cross, even on this side of the resurrection, even with our Bibles open and knowing what we know, it still works against us and it hopes to keep us from God and keep us from what God has for us. The same thing that caused the ancients to be afraid of God works in us, causing us to think there isn't a place for us with God. There isn't room for us in his kingdom. There isn't a desire within him for us. It causes us to question if the promises of God apply to us. It causes us to wonder if the power of God can work for us. The very thing that caused the ancients to miss God and misunderstand God can have the very same effect on us and might be having the very same effect on you right now. To discover what this thing is and understand how it works against us, we're going to take a look at a very familiar couple passage of Scripture beginning in John 3. Now, John 3 is probably best known, uh, it's probably the best place to start if you're wondering or questioning how God feels about you and where you stand with him. If you ever begin to doubt or wonder or question where, God, where you are with God and what God thinks about you, turn to John 3 and read it and read it and read it again because eventually, hopefully, it will sink in. And hopefully today we can get these truths into our hearts and we can uh, get rid of anything that might have a dissenting uh, voice, uh, be a dissenting voice in our hearts and minds. Maybe you didn't know, but it also reveals the thing in you. It reveals the thing in you that works to keep you from God. Maybe you didn't know this about John 3, but it reveals to us the very thing that worked against the ancients, that worked against the ancient people of Israel. That very thing that works against us is revealed to us in John 3. And surprise, surprise, it isn't sin. Now we're going to talk about sin more maybe than you would want us to talk about sin. We're going to talk about sin, but it's not sin even though it has a role to play. So the setup for John 3 
is that the religious community of Israel had heard about Jesus and they got themselves together and decided that somebody from their group needed to go and approach Jesus and size him up and see if they could get a read on him. So one of the higher, the higher ups got together and they all, maybe they drew straws, maybe they just voted on it, maybe they just waited for someone to say, I'll do it. But they got together and they're gonna send somebody to go see Jesus and hopefully figure out, is, is he good or is he bad or, or what's, his, what's his MO? And we've discussed the automatic vibe on Jesus was not enthusiasm, it was not optimism. Even with, the, with his performing miracles and doing things that looked good or felt good, people still weren't sure, especially the religious leaders. Perhaps he was only doing these signs and wonders to glory over the people, to establish his superiority and set up for judgment. They didn't know. They did not trust God. They did not think God was for them. So they were automatically skeptical that this could be something for their good. Uh, so like Adam, like Moses, like the people of Israel, like the priesthood, their internal conversation was, does God with us mean God for us? Now, you know the answer. And it's so privileged. We're so privileged to know the answer without bat an eye. But they didn't. They genuinely did not know if God with us meant God for us. Because something in them and something in us makes it seem like God with us might could mean God against us. So if you have a Bible, John 3 verses 1 and 2 introduce us to the one who was sent to Jesus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, I love this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So they don't know if Jesus is God or if he's from heaven. They just know that God has anointed him and that God is all over him. And they're feeling the same thing about him they felt about God in the Old Testament and in the recent days. And they are convinced that Jesus is from God or sent by God because nobody else could do the things that he's doing unless God's hand was on him. So then, so then Jesus does this thing where he would read people's minds and he would answer their questions before they ever asked their questions, which is one thing that you should never, never think that you're hiding something from God because God knows everything already. And that's the thing with Jesus. He would read people's mind. So Nicodemus' confession, confession that indeed God is with us, but deep down he is wondering, is God for us? So Jesus knows Nicodemus is gonna ask all these questions. So Jesus gets right to the point in verse three. Jesus answered him, and again, he hasn't asked a question yet but he answers him anyway because he knew he was about to ask a question. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly or verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in this statement, Nicodemus' concern is addressed by Jesus. He knows the fear that existed in the hearts of people. And in this moment, he reveals that there is in all of us something working against us, against our relationship with God and preventing us from having a relationship with God altogether. And that we need to be born again. We need to experience a new birth. Something in us has to go. Something in us has to die. And we have to be recreated or reborn from the inside out in order that we might be able to know God, walk with God, and receive all that God has for us. Because there is in all of us something working against us that tries to convince us that God is not for us and that God cannot be trusted. Something in us has to be changed. And we cannot change it on our own because we, in ourselves, in our flesh, we don't even know if we want to change. And most of the time, we choose not to. So notice Jesus doesn't say, unless you change your ways, you won't see the kingdom. This is not about actions. It's not about behavior. So if we ever get high and mighty with people and say, you better change or you won't see God or you won't experience God, back off a little bit because that's not what Jesus says and that's not what brought you to God either. Jesus doesn't say, unless you change, unless you get, do this or do that or stop that and start that. He does not say actions or behavior are required. This is about beliefs and this is about a mindset. 
Now, after this, Nicodemus is so confused that, Jesus, that he tries to play four-dimensional chess with Jesus, and it gets super weird and super wordy. And if you ever read the next part of this and you kind of scratch your head because it's really philosophical, it's because Jesus, Nicodemus is trying to be smart and sound smart. And he doesn't understand a thing Jesus is saying. And Jesus kind of plays with him a little bit and, and says, well, you're a master of Israel. You should know this stuff. But down in verse 13, Jesus says, okay, I've had enough fun with you, buddy. Let's get to the point. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. So Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, are you from God? What, you know, how do we get to God? And, and Jesus says, let me, let me just confirm your, your fears, Nicodemus. Nobody can get to God or heaven on their own. But God has sent his son to earth. And you're looking at him. And at this point, Nicodemus sits up a little straighter. He gets real nervous because he didn't know Jesus was literally from heaven. He just thought he might be some anointed prophet that was representing God. Now he gets even more insecure, even more nervous and becomes really worried. But Jesus doesn't stop. And as Moses, and this is really random, really obscure, only the scholarly people of Israel would even know this story. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I would imagine if you polled, a few, polled 10 or so Christians to name some of the miraculous stories in the Old Testament, nobody would name this story. Even the people of ancient Israel didn't talk about this story like they talked about most of the stories you're familiar with. So here's what Jesus is referring to. In these verses, he explains that he is indeed God made flesh and he calls back to an episode of Old Testament history about forgiveness and atonement. In Numbers 21, during Israel's wilderness years, the people had drifted far from God and the scripture says that fiery serpents came into their camp and began biting people and poisoning people and killing people. The people pleaded with Moses to plead to God and God told Moses to take a piece of copper, take some copper or bronze and mold it into the image of a snake and put that snake on a pole and set it out in the camp and if people would look at the serpent on the pole, they would be healed. That sounds like a crazy idea, a crazy plan, even for Old Testament miraculous stories. That does not sound like something you read every day. In the Old Testament, bronze and copper was a symbol of judgment. And by making this bronze serpent, Moses was in effect moving the penalty of the people onto the snakes. And as the people began looking at the snake on the pole, the snakes on the ground began dying and began running away. And as they began looking to the pole and trusting that God was removing their poison and putting it on the snakes, the snakes began to run, the snakes began to die, and they begin to be healed and they were spared and given another chance at life. The people trusted in God to remove the poison and spare their lives and they were saved. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying here? Do you see what it's pertaining to why he came? He was God made flesh, come to remove our poison and give us his life. He came to take our poison from us and take it on himself and die because of it so that we might have eternal life. Now, obviously the poison is sin, but what's he explaining? That he came to remove the poison, whether people ask for it or not. Now, now pay attention to the story. They had to look to the snake and when they looked at the snake, their poison was healed. But Jesus came at a point in time and died for people, whether they asked for it or not. And come on, nobody asked Jesus to go to the cross and die. His followers tried to keep him from going to the cross and dying. And the only disciple that went to the hill with him was John. And that was only to comfort his mother. Nobody said, Jesus, will you die for my sins? Jesus went to the cross with nobody asking him to. And that's pretty incredible. Whereas Moses' serpent was a picture of transferring the poison, Jesus' death would literally and without request move sin off of people onto him. Now the prophets had been predicting this way back. 
And it made sense suddenly, Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by or with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. John the Baptist would point to this scripture when he said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Not just the people that asked for it, not just the good people or the semi-good people. He took the sin of the world away. So what does that confirm What does Jesus confirm in those few statements? That he is our proof that God is for us, that we can trust him, and that salvation has come. Do you hear that? God is for us. Why is he for us? How can we trust him? Because salvation has come. Because God himself has come to do for us what we could not and cannot and would never imagine God would do for us. Whether we worship him or not, he will always be our way to heaven. He is our open door into the kingdom of God, whether we go through it or not. Now, of course, we understand God for us, God with us is God for us, but this was brand new for them. This was brand new for the Jewish people and for the whole world, actually. Now, nothing sums that up better than John 3, 16. To us, John 3, 16 is the starting point. For them, it was the restarting point because they had never imagined these words that would come out of a man's mouth pertaining to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Now, you know why we keep hearing that word perish? Because what did the Jews fear when they got near to God? They were afraid they were going to die. Adam, Moses, all the Old Testament saints, even the priests, when God came near, they thought they were about to die. But what does Jesus say? God so loves the world that whoever believes in him, you're not going to die. There's nothing to fear. God has given you the gift of eternal life. But you know what else Jesus confirms here? Because of his death, our sin no longer stands between us and God. I'm not saying that we're still not a sinner and we still don't sin. We do, and it'll mess up your life if you do, knowing that you shouldn't. But listen, your sin no longer stands between you and God because Jesus did not die in vain. He didn't die for potential salvation. He died for sin, for all sin, for everybody's sin. He took names to the cross. He didn't die for savability. He died and accomplished. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. Not it's open, not it's possible, not you can be saved if, you, if this, you know, this will work for you in the future. If you believe, what did he say? It is finished. Sin is washed away. As in if you die, Your sin will not separate you from God because Jesus died for your sin. You can die apart from God. You can die and suffer eternally if you don't put your faith in Jesus, but it's not because there's outstanding debt. Jesus took your sin to the cross and he finished the job. He died for your sin. He washed your sin away. You can believe it or not. You can receive it or not, but he did it. Now, here's the thing. Because I know what you're thinking. Not everybody has come to God as a result of this, have they? No. Obviously, no. Not everybody has come to God through his cross. Even though he's made a way, everybody has not taken the way. Of course not. But let's be honest. We don't always feel close to God either, do we? Even after we've come by way of the cross. And while, while we may believe that Jesus died for us and we're being more honest, we still question whether or not God is for us. We question whether or not God wants anything to do with us. We still wonder, even after Jesus has died for us and we believe that he died for our sins, sometimes we still wonder 
if we're good with God, if God is for us and if we are with him. Why is that? What is going on in our hearts that drives this wedge between us and God? If sin has been taken out of the picture, if sin no longer stands between you and God, what is causing us to fear God? What is causing us to question whether or not God is for us? Even after he's made his thoughts clear to us, even after he's made his plans clear to us, even though the cross has literally taken away our sins, what is working against us? Because something is, something is. While the verses we've read so definitely explain the gospel, the two verses that come next might explain why we still resist, why we still doubt, why we still wonder if God actually loves us and why we fail to receive all that God has for us. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be him or the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now notice both verse 16 and 17 begin with four as in they're explaining everything that Jesus has taught so far. These verses explain why Jesus came. Contrary to what many believed, what they were afraid of, Jesus had come to save the world, not to judge the world or destroy the world. And this is God's character defined. He wasn't vengeful or vindictive. He was rather loving, patient, kind, and merciful. But there's something else to find here. We gain insight to what is going on in our own hearts that would cause us to misunderstand and misinterpret God. What has caused humanity to misunderstand and misinterpret God? All the way back to Genesis 3. Notice a word that's repeated three times in these two verses. Verse 17 and 18. The word condemned or condemnation. Jesus says that he didn't come to condemn the world, but then remarks that apart from him, there is only condemnation. And now let's zoom out to the landscapes that we've studied so far. Why were Adam and Eve afraid of God? Why was Moses afraid of God? Why were the children of Israel, after being saved by God from Egypt, why were they afraid of God? Why were Samson's parents afraid of God? Why was the priesthood afraid of God? Why was Nicodemus afraid of God? Jesus tells us, because they felt condemned. But in every one of the instances, that condemnation, none of those condemnations came from God. In fact, in every one of those instances, we looked at in dozens of others, God literally says to the people, do not be afraid. Yet they still were, because they felt condemned. I love the way Samson's parents respond. Now, we heard what Samson's dad said, but his mom was close to making the connection that Jesus makes here for us. Back in Judges, Samson's dad says, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But then his mom says this, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have shown us all these things nor announced such things as these. If only they would listen to her. If God had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have shown us all this. But they still felt like there was something to be afraid of. Isn't that what Jesus just said in verse 17? If God wanted to condemn the world, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to save it. He wouldn't have sent a message after message, prophet after prophet, bearing good news and hope until he finally sent a savior to die for the sins of the world. Yet, 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 people still miss this and we still miss this. And it's because in our hearts, we all bear something that wasn't put there by God. It's a byproduct of sin, it's a byproduct of Satan and it's condemnation or another word, guilt. Everybody struggles with guilt more than you may realize. Even though your sin has been paid for and Jesus himself died for it, you still struggle with guilt. And nothing fights against the gospel or God's grace more than guilt. But here's what I want us to understand, and it may sound contrary to everything you've ever heard in church. Guilt is not from God, and guilt has never been leveraged by God. Religion got this wrong a long time ago, supposing that leveraging guilt and imposing guilt was a way to steer people towards God. But the reality is that before religion ever got involved, guilt has been steering people away from God since the beginning. 
And here's what I want you to understand. If you don't get anything else from this message or anything before this, I want you to get this. Jesus came to make it clear. Guilt has never been God imposed. As in God has never said anything to make you feel guilty before him, condemned before him. That has always been an enemy, the enemy's tactic to imprison people and isolate people from God's love and God's grace. Guilt has never been God imposed. Guilt is Satan's prison in which he haunts us and taunts us. And come on, you know what it's like to be locked away in that prison, don't you? Guilt is suffocating and guilt is devastating. And if someone has ever stood in front of you in a church and made you feel shame and the burden of guilt as if it's from God, by the authority of God's word, they were wrong. And they did more harm to you than they did good. Where does guilt come from? Guilt comes from sin. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve obeyed the serpent instead of God and immediately they felt shame and they hid from God and God came towards them because he loved them and what did they do in their shame and their guilt? They hid from God. So yes, sin makes us guilty. There's no way around that. But God's response toward guilt has always been, as we've chronicled today, has always been to relieve that guilt, to free us from that guilt, to absolve that guilt. God's gift of salvation is meant to relieve our guilt. But the tragic thing is, a lot of people who claim to have trusted in Jesus to be saved still struggle with guilt and are still imprisoned by guilt. Aren't you? aren't we? That even though we sing, oh, how I love Jesus, even though we sing amazing grace, we still struggle with guilt and we are still imprisoned by guilt. And even though we claim to be saved, we are never walking in the freedom that comes with that salvation. And if there's anything that breaks God's heart, it's to see his people weighed down by and chained down by guilt. And it's really counteractive. It's really debilitating as Christians when we try to walk in the freedom of salvation, the joy of salvation, yet we're still haunted and taunted by guilt. In all my years of church, this is a subject that's rarely been breached because a lot of Christians are just convinced that guilt is something we're stuck with. And if you've ever felt like that, no wonder you've never made any progress spiritually. No wonder because guilt has always kept you from growing in grace and guilt and grace will not coexist. Guilt is the ultimate killjoy. If you wonder why you can't ever get free and you can't ever grow, it's because you are still allowing guilt to dominate you and kill the joy God wants to give you. We did a whole series about fiery darts that Satan hurls at us to wound us and set us back. But guilt isn't a dart. Guilt is a dungeon. And here's what's unique about how Satan leverages guilt. One of the ways he leverages guilt is he tries to tell us how to address it. You see, the other things we talked about, anger, fear, jealousy, doubt, Satan provides us justification and says, yeah, you should stay that way. But Satan likes to play with us with guilt. He tries to convince us that, oh, you can do this to absolve your guilt. You should take this route. You should do this because this might take your guilt away. And isn't it true that a lot of us, we think we're addressing guilt. We think we're doing something to help guilt, but all we're really doing is trying to cover it up or trying to hide from how we really feel. What did Adam and Eve do? They hid. What did the Old Testament people do? They ran from God. They feared him. And to this day, When we feel guilty, when we feel guilty, our instinct is to run from God and find somewhere to hide. And isn't it true that we often have a place that we run to hide? We distract ourselves with something. We go to places, we turn to things because they make us feel good and we want something to make us feel good to cover up the bad. And usually sometimes as we run away from God, we end up into doing more bad stuff and it just makes us feel worse about ourselves. Have you been in that cycle? You're ignoring the issue, allowing it only become more dominant and powerful. And by drowning out the guilt, you're only driving it or firing it up. Now, after this, and we'll close on this, in John 4, Jesus makes a special trip to a watering well in Samaria around lunchtime. And around lunchtime, no one went to the watering well because you would go in the morning or the evening because it was too hot to go during the day. But there was a woman that came to the well on that day because she was too ashamed to be out in public any other time of the day. 
Jesus goes to the woman at this well and he begins asking her questions and then he asks the woman to, hey, will you draw me out a drink while you draw yourself out a drink? And she is a little bit alarmed because normally Jews and Samaritans didn't speak and men did not really speak to her unless they were inquiring about something that wouldn't be um, so good. So Jesus responds to this woman and he draws out in her heart what her true desire is. Look over at chapter four, verse number 10 through 15. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was, who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where, did, where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who dug this well? Verse 13, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, because, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a wellspring, a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. You see, this woman, as we'll discover, is full of shame and guilt. She was haunted by all that she had been through, things that she did, things that were done to her. She bore the shame and the guilt of all that. She had resorted to a life where this shame and guilt controlled her. It controlled where she went and when she went. It caused her to shut herself out from most everyone. She fell into a cycle where she felt that she could do no better for herself. The water of this earthly well was just a symbol of all the avenues this world offers us to absolve or cope with our guilt but they will only ever cause us to wallow in our shame. Jesus whispers to this woman and says, wouldn't it be nice to finally get free from all that? Now as, an exchange, as the exchange goes on, Jesus doesn't ignore her past. He brings it up, not to condemn her, but because it was already condemning her. It was keeping her from seeing him. She immediately goes on defense mode, talking about religion. The woman remarks that maybe one day God will send someone to help us with all this. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and for the first time and the only time in the gospel, he says to her, I am the Messiah from God sent to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He did not come to judge her or condemn her. He came to save her just like he came to save us. But Jesus says to us, like he said to her in verse 13, Whoever drinks from this water will thirst again. Church, we have to quit hiding in this world, turning to this world for relief, only to perpetuate the cycle of guilt and sin. We have to come to Jesus and receive his relief. Yes, it involves confronting your past, but only so that you might exchange it for what God has done for you. God offers us salvation, pardoning our guilt, purchasing our life, purposing our future. If you're caught up in sin, Jesus doesn't, doesn't want to confront it, but he wants to comfort you. 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. As in he doesn't want to give you more guilt, he wants to take that guilt away when he takes that sin away. God never holds anything over us that he's passed over, but we still hold that stuff over ourselves, don't we? God put our sin on Jesus and Jesus put our sin in the grave. And the guilt you still bear for sin that Jesus has forgiven, he has washed it away as well. And he's asking you, he's calling you to begin drinking from the fountain that he gives, not from this world because the world will only make you feel more guilty. Jesus says, I will give you life. Psalms 103 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah chapter seven, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, part of trusting Jesus, part of trusting in Jesus that a lot of us has missed, Satan has prevented us and the church may have never told us. The Christian life is not motivated by guilt, but by grace. The truth is a lot of us have never heard this, but also a lot of us continue to resort to this world to find relief from guilt. But today we've heard Jesus define God's goodness to us, call us to his side to find ourselves in him and return to his gospel again and again for this reminder. May we never believe the lie that guilt is a curse we'll forever have to bear. Jesus can replace our disgrace with his grace if we will make him our hiding place. Rather than running from God, rather than hiding from God, God calls us to come to him. 
and find ourselves in him. If you will come to him and trust that he has good for you, he forgives you and delivers you. Psalm 32 verse seven says, he is our hiding place. He preserves us from our troubles. He surrounds us with deliverance. I wanna ask you today, would you make the decision to come to Jesus? And maybe you've come to Jesus, but you've never trusted that he wants to rejuvenate your life and wash away that guilt. You see, salvation doesn't just mean that God forgives us, but it means God redeems us. Remember the story of Joseph, how his brothers sold him out and they had to be, he had to bail him out. And they were convinced that the only reason he didn't punish them in return is because his dad was alive and they, he didn't want to break his dad's heart. So when Jacob dies, his brothers come before him and they beg him to have mercy on them. But look at this. His brothers came before him and fell down. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. As for you, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. You see, we usually focus on what God did to Joseph, but don't you see what God promises us here? God says to the people that sinned against Joseph, I have taken your sin and I've redeemed it. You know that God can take your past, even the darkest, deepest secrets of you, that you have that you are haunted by, God can take your past and redeem it. The thing that haunts you and the thing that guilt rids you, God can take that and turn it to something good. You see, the thing about God is God doesn't just forgive, he forgets. He doesn't hold things over people like we hold things over people thinking we're holy. God forgives and God forgets, but he doesn't just do that. God redeems that's the God we serve. He doesn't just remove our sin, he redeems our lives. If you're struggling under sin today, God wants to deliver you. If you're struggling under guilt today, God wants to remove that guilt. He's already removed the sin. He wants to remove the guilt. If we will come to Jesus and make him our hiding place, we'll find a life without regret, a life free from shame, a life full of joy, full of peace, and full of redemption. If you're like me and you've been saved for a long time, I bet you still deal with guilt. And I bet, the, I bet the enemy looms over you and says that guilt will always be with you. That guilt will always be your ghost that haunts you. But God says to us, I have not just taken your sin away. I can take the guilt away. And where you think there is a dead end, I can give you new life. I can give you something, redemption. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you for this sobering conversation about something that we all deal with, yet we don't talk about. We don't always get it out in the open. We allow it to haunt us. We allow it to loom over us. Lord, would you encourage people today to find Jesus as their hiding place, to come to him, not run from him? Would you encourage people today that they don't have to run away from you. They don't have to hide from you. You love them. You took their sin to the cross, but you don't want them to bear that guilt anymore. You wanna relieve them and absolve them of that guilt. But God, if we spend our days drinking from this world, trying to take things from the world to cover up our past, we won't ever find relief. Would you bring us to Jesus today and would you bring him into our hearts that we might would find that relief from the guilt that so often haunts us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.